Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out all the stuff we've been riding and reviewing recently over at blisterreview.com. And if you are planning to camp in the Gunnison Valley soon, please make sure you're up to date on the latest camping regulations, which have changed recently. We've included a link in the show notes with everything you need to know. Okay, this summer has been flying by, and we've been spending time on a ton of very interesting new bikes and gear. So we thought it would be a good idea to do a roundup of some of our favorite products that we've been on this year, and talk about some of the new gear we're most excited to check out soon. I'm joined by Dylan Wood and Luke Coppa for this little State of the Union roundup, and we get into it about a whole lot of different bikes and other products, mullet bikes and bike weight, high pivot bikes, and several, frankly, genius marketing ideas that I can't believe we're just putting out into the world for free. I know you're all on the edge of your seat for that last part, so let's get right to my conversation with Dylan and Luke. All right. Well, this week on Bikes and Big Ideas, I am joined by Dylan Wood and Luke Coppa, and we're going to do a bit of a rundown on a bunch of our favorite mountain bike products that we spent time on so far this year, and then we'll get into some of the other stuff that we have not yet tried but are real excited to. Dylan, why don't you kick things off? Tell us about something that you've enjoyed particularly out of the year so far. Yeah, when I look back on all the products I've been on this year, my my mind immediately goes to the Pivot Trail 429. And I know I talked I know we talked a good bit about this bike uh last episode that I was on, so I don't just want to be repeating myself over and over again, but I do want to reiterate how versatile that bike felt, you know, for how little travel it had compared to other trail bikes. Um, just how good of a climber it was, how solid the build kit that we had on it was, and just how an all-around blast that bike was. And not only like mellow Hartman's trails, but you could get on some pretty gnarly fast trails and up in CB where originally you'd definitely want to be reaching for an enduro bike, but the pivot really surprised me in all aspects. and probably one of the more impressive bikes I've been on period. So yeah, great job pivot. Love it. Nice. Yeah. Both you and Eric Friesen had really good things to say about that bike. And Luke, I know you spent some time on it too. And we're generally pretty into it. Like Dylan said, we talked about that a fair bit on episode 77 review reports episode with Dylan. And you can also check out our full review on the site. That's up now too. But uh, yeah, it seems like that one's been a super well-rounded bike that kind of punches above its weight pretty well for being a 120 rear travel bike and everyone who's spent time in that at blisters had really good things to say about it so how about you luke what's up next on your list well on that note about bikes that kind of punch above their travel class and i'm admittedly uh, a bit biased on this one but it's the bike i bought this summer <laughs> the common meta tr29 and mostly because like I mean, you guys take more of the lead on our bike reviews for good reason. I'm relatively newer to the bike scene, but I have been able to get on a few of the bikes we have this summer after you guys have spent time on them. And even compared to some of the longer travel options I've been on, I've been really impressed with how well that meta performs, especially in the bike park because I spend a lot of time there. I'm really busy, especially this time of year working on our, our winter buyer's guide. And so getting quick laps in at the bike park when I can sneak out is nice, but 
I also, especially on the weekends, try and do some longer pedaling. And I'm definitely not like Eric where I need a super light uh, bike that accelerates really quickly. And the Meta is definitely not one of those bikes, but it's worked It's worked quite well for everything I've used it for so far. And it is definitely not like when we got the, the Trail 429 um, lifting it, after having spent some time on my meta, it's very obvious that the meta is a heavy bike, but I've definitely gotten used to it at this point. And um, yeah, just generally really psyched on how well it's performed on a, on basically everything I've used it for definitely better bikes for certain things, but I've been pretty psyched on it. And, um, I'm just hoping Dylan and Eric say the same thing. So I don't regret spending the the money on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually do want to chime in and agree with you really quickly. I, I do think the Meta TR rides more like an enduro bike than its travel would suggest. That thing's super capable. Uh, like David said last episode, 77, we ended up talking a little while about, you know, yeah, it is a heavy bike like you mentioned, but I really don't think that that weight is a bad thing. If anything, it for me, it makes it feel like really planted and it really commits to a line really well and just doesn't get deflected as much as like the trail 429 would, for example, of, you know, six pounds lighter bike. So yeah, maybe I just want to get your opinion real quick on, on what you think about the weight. Do you think, is it excessive at all? Or like how much of a pro or a con is that weight? Because, you know, mountain bikers are weight weenies and you see like 35 plus pounds on paper and some people probably are, turned off by that pretty quickly so what, what do you think yeah i think i i definitely bring some of my ski reviewer perspective to this because like i think about like in a ski shop you have people coming in they grab for skiers out there will maybe know like grab a head core and they're like oh my gosh this is so light but then they ski it and well at least for some people it's it's very bad in certain scenarios compared to a heavier uh, ski. And I think it's like the same or it's definitely not to the same degree, but like with a bike, like when I lifted up that pivot, I was like, Oh, this feels really light. And I definitely noticed like on steeper, like I think at Hartman's that's where I'd notice weight a bit more where you're going up and down a lot and you, you're kind of trying to enjoy those trend, like, almost the more rolling trails where you're going transitioning from up to down very frequently. I feel like that's where I would notice weight a bit more, but most of the riding I do around here, ideally it's pedaling a section up most of the way and then going down for a extended period of time. And in those scenarios, I think I just tend to get in a rhythm um, and not really notice a bike's weight too much. Like I remember when I I've pedaled 401 a few times and that's just mostly a, a dirt road climb and like doing it on the Ibis Ripley AF, which isn't a super light bike, but definitely lighter than the meta and shorter travel. I think at first I noticed it felt a little bit lighter, but after about 15 minutes, I don't really think about weight at all. And then on the downhill, yeah, I think it's, it's hard to say because there's not like a, a carbon version of the meta that's like three pounds lighter or something that we could compare it directly to. But I do think there's the weight does play a role in it being planted and kind of the coil shock and the big lyric up front probably help with that and the geometry. Um, so, yeah, overall, I think for what I wanted when I was looking for a new bike, um, 
I wasn't really worried about weight and I don't, after getting on more bikes this summer, I don't think I'm really regretting one that's on the heavier side. I really do like the ski analogy because I feel like, yeah, we do talk a lot about how weight can be a really good thing in skis. And I just did some math real quick, comparing a 30 pound to a 35 pound bike ratio wise is the same as comparing like a 2000 gram to a 2300 plus gram ski interesting which in my mind that's like a pretty substantial difference like 300 it's like 333 grams in a ski like that's a lot and but when you look at five pounds in a bike i feel like most people tend to frown at that where whereas i feel like we should be more willing to understand that weight isn't always a bad thing and it can definitely improve your performance of your bike not only just decrease how well it climbs or like you said how well it sort of accelerates or keeps its momentum or speed through more rolly terrain i guess yeah for sure and i think what luke said about weight being kind of the more you are grinding up an extended fire road climb and then just ripping back down something the less weight is in any way detrimental i think is 100 percent right you know, it does start to matter more when you're doing stuff where you're on more rolly terrain where you're having to accelerate out of flatter corners and run yourself up little punchy climbs and that kind of stuff. There are ways in which it can be detrimental. I do think that it's interesting to sort of think about, like, I don't think it, it is an at all controversial statement to say that you can sort of, quote unquote, spend weight to improve downhill performance in a bunch of ways. You know, you go to bigger brakes and better suspension and bigger tires and so on and so forth. There are a lot of ways that you can like clearly improve downhill performance by adding weight there. I still haven't wrapped my head around quite as clearly if I think weight sort of strictly for the sake of weight is as beneficial on a bike. And I'm totally with you guys on the ski side. Like, you know, we've, <laughs> you've heard me talk about stuff like the Blizzard Bodacious is one of my all time favorite skis. And those are, over 2,500 grams in a 186. I mean, they're, they're super heavy and I love them and they're kind of dumb, but they're the best. So like on the ski side, it's just sort of a different thing, right? Because you sort of have this, like you don't have suspension in quite as literal a way as you do on a bike, for example. You know, with skis, adding some weight sort of does tend to generally improve the quote-unquote suspension of it, but it's not quite strictly analogous to the bike world where you have like it's it's not as clear to me if it is literally the weight itself that is improving things or if it is by making things heavier you can design things differently and consequently improve performance but the the weight itself isn't necessarily the thing that is driving the performance if that makes sense i haven't i haven't wrapped my head around that on bikes quite as clearly i think yeah, I think I think that's a, a very good point. Like actually one of our Blister members, I was talking to him about his skis and I think he I think he has a pair of Ranger Fisher 102s and he literally attached some metal weights to the tips and he was like, yeah, they do they go through chop and crud better. They don't get knocked around as much. I don't think you would notice as linear of a relationship with a bike. But hey, if someone wants to start putting some dumbbells on their uh, trail bike, let me know how it goes. There have been a couple of DH racers I know who have experimented with that. 
just like literally adding weights to kind of around the frame bottom bracket area. And generally it's people doing it on the main frame where it's sprung weight and doing it pretty yeah. low in the frame so that it's not raising the center of gravity. As far as I know, I, I don't know of anyone who has concluded that it really made things enormously better and really stuck with it, but I know that it's been played with a little bit. Yeah, I was going to say that could be a good experiment. Like if you could somehow discreetly add like a lead rod to somebody's bike without them knowing and all of a sudden they're like, oh, wow, my bike just feels so much better or, or the opposite, like, man, my bike feels like shit right now. Or, you know, you could also fill up your tires with water instead of air. And so it's, you know, you got that, you know, the rotational weight, obviously a bigger difference, but you just, you look at a line and I don't think there's a force in nature that can take you off that line if your tires are filled with water. Wait, you guys don't fill your tires with sealant? <laughs> sealant <laughs> would be just... even better, actually, because there's no way you could get a flat. That, now, <laughs> yeah. Luke's thinking. Well, so back in my bike shop days, we did actually, as a prank, fill a coworker's tires with water one time. Unfortunately, it'd be a little hard to do it as like a blind A-B test because you could hear it sloshing pretty obviously, but... It's been done. It's good to know. <laughs> that little tangent aside, kind of keep rolling up in the travel ladder here. The first bike I want to highlight is the Privateer 161, which, uh, again, super heavy bike. As we had it built for our review, I think it came around 36 pounds and didn't matter. I mean, in th that's a case where, again, this is a bike that was it's meant to really be kind of a winch and plummet very aggressive descending bike that can get you to the top, but not necessarily do it quickly. And it's definitely a bike that is not great at riding kind of mellow rolling trails. It's something that wants a lot of speed and aggression to sort of come alive and work. But by that same token is just a good example of how you can make a bike do some things really well if you don't worry too much about versatility and come in with a really singular focus on what you want it to do well and they wanted to set out a bike to make a bike that was just a dedicated enduro race bike and wasn't super expensive and absolutely knocked that specific goal out of the park. It's not a bike that makes a ton of sense for people who, yeah, aren't trying to go fast down something steep and rough most of the time. But, you know, if that's in your wheelhouse, it does that really well. And it does it while being way less expensive than most of the things you'd theoretically pitted against and so it definitely deserves commendation for that it's cool yeah that bike is i think what they're doing is super interesting and and the 141 the shorter travel one is kind of like eerily similar to my meta <laughs> i imagine those two would probably end up feeling extremely similar if you if you put a lot of the same components on them yeah i think that's a very good comparison there on paper really similar and yeah we haven't ridden the 141 yet but we've talked to privateer about it a fair bit and it is design wise very similar to the 161 in a lot of ways but just mellowed out sort of in the ways you'd expect the shorter travel bike to be geometries steepened and shortened just a tiny bit and so on and i haven't ridden the the meta yet either but just based on how you guys have talked about it i think that comparison makes a ton of sense yeah on the note of uh, like versatility um, that you were talking about. It sounds like there hasn't been many complaints about the bike other than that, which 
you make it sound like it's pretty invalid complaint because it it's not really meant to be a versatile bike but one thing i've heard is that the 80 degree seat tube might feel too steep what do you what do you think about that yeah so again this is one you can read we talk about that quite a bit in the full review i think that the 80 degree seat tube is maybe bordering on too steep it definitely felt weird when i first got on it in no small part, I got used to it after spending some time on it. But I also think that that makes the bike, it, it sort of works well for the grinding up a fire road that the bike is sort of first and foremost meant to do climbing wise, but does sort of hinder its versatility on more rolling terrain, which I guess I'm sort of of two minds about it. On one hand, I think that that's not what the bike's supposed to do anyway. And so it's sort of a design objective that seems fine on the flip side i do think that it wouldn't hurt what the bike does well to mellow it out just a tiny bit and it it would make it a little bit more versatile and a little easier to set up for some people so i think there's a case to be made that they went borderline slightly too far but if i was in charge and got to do whatever i wanted with that bike i wouldn't go very far in slacking it out, you know, maybe a degree or something, but there's an argument to be made there. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I sort of feel the same way about the, the meta TRs. Uh, I think it's 78 and a half or something degree C2 bangle. The first ride I did on it, which involved a pretty long climb up a dirt road that isn't steep always. I, I kind of felt like I was like sliding off the front of the seat or something. I just totally wasn't used to it. And then I rode that bike again today and I didn't even think about it. I was totally used to it. And there was plenty of steep sections that I was my first time nailing them. Who knows if that was the reason, but I do feel like the pros of such a steep seat tube angle definitely outweigh the cons, like you said, of like rolling terrain and, you know, flat roads. It's like, yeah, whatever. Cause I think the pros of being a little more forward and being in a better position to put power down, going up really steep stuff definitely outweighs that. And I don't think privateer would disagree either. I mean, the one forty one that we talked about, they slack into the seat tube by, I think about two degrees, if I remember correctly. And so, you know, the bike that's supposed to be more versatile, yeah, they went slacker and that all seems like a reasonably sensible, just sort of way to go about it to me. So the super steep C tube does hamper versatility some, but on a bike that's not really trying to be versatile anyway, I'm pretty okay with it. Yeah. I, w- I wonder if we'll be finding like a, a happy place somewhere around like 78, 79 degrees maybe. Cause I, I like that. And I, I could see that any use in a lot of like more aggressive trail and enduro bikes. It is interesting also to note sort of the interplay between effective and actual C tube angle here. So, for example, I've been spending a bunch of time on the Forbidden Dreadnought recently, which has uh, a 76-degree effective seat tube angle, which, you know, for a long-travel enduro bike is not that steep. But it also, in the size large that I've been riding, has, I think, a 76.1-degree actual seat tube angle. So uh, that that 76-degree effective angle is kind of really the truly the seat tube angle no matter where you have the seat set 
which is obviously not the case for most bikes where the effective C2 bangles significantly slacker than the actual one. And that feels, I'm really happy with it. I think that's one of the things they really nailed on that bike. It feels like a really good way to get the steep, effective, effective C2 bangle. If you want to use a really stupid (laughs) term for like where the seat actually ends up at the height. They're going to trademark that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You better get your name on that before companies start using it. (laughs) We'll have to hold back this episode a little bit so I can get my lawyers on it. But (laughs) yeah, um, but you you get my point, right? Like when you're the, the effective C2 bangle tends to be measured at the height of the top of the head tube. And then on, especially on larger sizes, no one's pedaling with their seat anywhere close to that height. And with a slacker actual C2 bangle, the sort of real C2 bangle is getting slacker at that point. And doing the not crazy slack effective C2 bangle, but very steep actual angle feels like a great way to sort of balance out those things and uh, get the really steep C2 bangle when you want it without having some of the downsides of a super steep actual C2 bangle at the same time. And uh, that, I think, is one thing that they really got right on that bike. It's cool. So, well, bring it back around. Dylan, you have any other standout products you want to run through here? I think it would be a shame if I didn't mention the Hustle REM Tech magnetic clipless pedals um, just because, like, they're magnetic clipless pedals, like, that's something I've never ridden before. That's something that, although it has been tried in the industry a few times before, I don't think it's ever been truly successful or caught on because go to a local trailhead. I'm sure you're not going to see anyone riding magnetic pedals unless you're here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, then you might because it is a little bit more popular here due to their local presence. But I think it's a really unique and pretty impressive mix of the you know foot retainment that a clipless pedal can provide as well as the confidence and freedom that you have from being able to take a foot off whenever you need to whether that be to you know plan a foot to avoid sliding out and crashing um you can definitely achieve that quicker with the magnetic pedals versus a true clipless pedal especially if you haven't been on clipless for long and you don't have that muscle memory totally nailed down uh, which on that note i think it makes it a pretty compelling option for people who are maybe are on the fence about clipless and don't want to totally commit to crashing and burning in muscle memory and it's also just fun to like be able to put your foot out and drift a corner when you want to and just be able to put your foot right back on and have uh i think we called it like a six out of ten on the like foot retainment scale when compared to a clipless pedal so pretty cool product super unique um pretty awesome that they're like 500 yards away from my house yeah really cool stuff i think I think it's going to end up being the most successful attempt at a magnetic clipless pedal by far, but they'll be launching in the fall, hopefully. So we'll see if it catches on or not, but um, I've been impressed for one. So, yeah. Yeah. And I have now been using them, I guess, I think it's just been like a, about a week and opposite of Dylan, I'm coming from flats 
only use flats apart from like maybe a couple test rides on clipless and it's been it's been interesting on one hand i think the pedal design is really well executed on the other hand i've discovered that i really don't like clipless shoes and particularly their the slots where you can position uh well normally the cleat but in this case it's just basically a block of metal because coming from flats i'm used to having my foot very centered over the pedal and the clipless slots are much farther forward than i would normally put my foot and so that like especially the first ride i was like i don't know how to ride like this is i i like i can't go downhill (laughs) and then now that i've like learned to trust the magnets and knowing that I can put my foot or like put the pedal under, I mean, what feels to me like the ball of my foot and drop my heels and trust it to hold. Now I'm liking a lot more, but that was like something I hadn't even thought about when I first heard about the pedals and trying them. And the other thing too, is not having spent almost any time with clipless uh, setups. I feel like for people who are coming from clipless, it's going to be useful because you can just put the metal plate where you would normally put your cleat and you know where your foot needs to be on the pedal. Whereas for me, I've never ridden like that really. So I'm, I'm still getting used to where the most secure spot is or where I can really get like the best blend of secure like spot or secure connection between the plate and the magnets while also feeling like I'm, in a comfortable position. So yeah, that that's one of the big surprises for me. I didn't expect the shoes to be an issue at all, but I think the system itself is really cool. Like as a flats rider, even that first ride, I didn't have to give a second of thought to getting off the bike, like as opposed to clipless where I'm like kind of scared of them. Um, like it does not require much effort at all, especially if you just kind of like roll your ankle off the pedal, it's super easy to go off. And then now that I'm kind of figuring them out, also impressed by how well they've been holding on chunky, faster descents. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a cool, cool design. And, um, I think it's going to be one of those products that I like more as I keep using it and get, get used to it more. But yeah, I'd also be pretty excited if some clipless manufacturer made, cleat slots that go all the way to the middle yeah that's really interesting we luke you and i were talking about this earlier this week a little bit and uh it got me thinking i'm sort of one of the few people at blister who goes back and forth between clips and flats with some regularity and ride both a fair bit and um it did make me wonder if the fact that i do spend so much time clipped in means that i'm sort of just used to positioning my foot farther forward kind of on the shoe or on the pedal than I would uh, if I was riding flats all the time. And in part, that also made me think, I'm wondering if that has to do a bit with my preference for just really over-the-top aggressive flat pedals, like the uh, Chromag Dagas that we just met, dropped in our uh, flat pedal roundup a little while ago, which are really one of my favorites. They're monster pins, super hard to reposition your foot on, kind of need to just stab it down and get it right the first time or you're you're not really moving them after that but super super grippy and yeah it did make me think maybe i'm just sort of doing flats wrong because i'm so used to being clipped in and uh don't have any clear answers on that but have my head scratching about it a little bit that's an interesting note because i i sort of feel the same way um 
when I gave the hustle pedals to Luke, the magnetic pedals, I basically took his flat pedals and shoes. And so I, I did a ride on those probably my first time riding flats in like six years and it did feel pretty wonky. And I was noticing that I was putting my foot as if it was like a clipless pedal, you know, like, like Luke said, aligned slightly behind like the ball of my foot. And it is interesting to get Luke's take too on coming from flats because I would add that I don't think the um, hustle magnetic REM tech pedals are any easier to get used to than clipless. I, I still feel like just different sensation, especially foot placement coming from flat pedals. Um, I do think they're more forgiving, but no matter where you're coming from, they definitely take some getting used to definitely took some getting used to for me coming from clipless, uh, especially because I haven't been on flats in six years. I was like pulling up as if I had unlimited amounts of retention and just like, riding one footed around the bike park for like half an hour before I figured it out. But yeah, I have, I've lended the pedals to like a flat, some flat pedal friends who never ride clipless. And they, it was, they said it also felt pretty wonky. So be, be interesting to see how long it, it takes you to maybe totally get used to it. Or if you even do totally get used to it, interested to see that. Yeah, I th- I mean, even on the second ride, I was feeling way better. Um, just because like I, it it honestly like took me a little bit to figure out that like oh I just I have to change where I put my feet, and it was just funny how something that small made such an impact on just like my mentality going down and like my body positioning. But that said, second ride I was riding, I think probably just as fast as I normally would on, on flats. And in contrast to Dylan, I now can pull up on my pedals a little bit, (laughs) which has been nice Um, for like weird techie maneuvers or in the air has actually been nice too. So yeah, I think it's just, it's, it's cool to have a different option. And, and yeah, I think at, at this point I'm riding just about as I would normally, but I think it'll, yeah, like I said, just keep getting better as you spend more time on it. And yeah, since it's not like anything else that's currently on the market, I, I feel like that's something to, ex- to expect. Yeah, those seem pretty cool. And I'd be curious to give them a go at some point too, especially as someone who is fairly familiar riding both flats and clips. It'd be interesting to see sort of how they feel as a middle ground or kind of where along that spectrum they fall or how uh, that would work out. Yeah, I think we'll send them send them your way probably after Luke's done with them. That'd be a really good perspective. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Luke, do you have anything else you want to bring up here? The only other product that was something I hadn't tried, and I think you you guys already talked about this previously, but that the Shimano Dior drivetrain um, is just excellent for the price. And we, we had it on that Rip, Ibis Ripley AF. It's I love Shimano drivetrains. It's not very expensive by today's standards. And yeah, it's if I was building up a bike from a frame, it's probably what I would put on it. Maybe trying a lighter cassette, but I mean, my current bike weighs like 36 or 37 pounds. So who cares? <laughs> yep. It's really good. And like you said, the sort of the, the cassette is notably heavy and is maybe the 
first place I would suggest people sort of consider upgrading if they were concerned about the weight on it, but it shifts super well. It's very impressive, particularly given what it costs. So Shimano's done some really good stuff there. Last thing I want to highlight for the just outstanding product side before we roll into things that we're excited to try uh, is the Vorsprung Seekus. We ran the review of that. For people who aren't familiar, it's basically an air spring upgrade for a bunch of different current or recent-ish model Fox and RockShox forks. And, you know, it's kind of a goofy-looking thing. It's this big air canister that sticks off the bottom of the fork leg next to the brake caliper. But it does a truly impressive job of improving both small bump sensitivity and mid-stroke support, which is sort of tends to be the weaker points of an air sprung fork. You get they're lighter obviously than a coil and you have far more adjustability given that you just need to hook up a shock pump and stiffen things up as much as you want. But the sensitivity and then support tend to be the two areas that suffer and the Seekist really does an impressively good job at improving both of those while still maintaining the adjustability you get out of an air spring and not adding a whole lot of weight. It's about 130 grams, so it's not nothing, but it's relatively modest and the performance gains are pretty substantial. And it's also just a very clever product conceptually. It's a, There's a lot going on in there and it's a really, really ingenious thing thing had a pretty funny evening where uh k2 line ski designer jed Yeiser was over we were doing some work on one of his bikes and drinking some beers and i was like oh yeah jed you should check this thing out and kind of pulled it apart for him and he was as the sort of engineer designer dork was just really going kind of wild like looking through the thing thinking through how it worked and then also looking at a bunch of the machining that they do to actually produce it. It's a very complicated machined part with some really clever stuff going on to make it possible to actually machine the thing. And uh, he really had a good time going wild on that. It's just a very cool, very clever product. Yeah. And for your non-engineer friends, you can just tell them it's, it's Nas. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much, pretty much the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) Another another yeah. thing we should trademark before Vorsprung <laughs> takes that phrase. Nos for your bike. <laughs> uh, that's good. You should send that my way. I'll trade you the pedals for that. I would like to try that. <laughs> yeah, we could arrange that. We'll talk after. All right. Well, to move on then, we, as promised, we're going to talk about just a couple of things that we haven't yet tried but are excited to out of various crop of recently released bikes and other such products. So Dylan, why don't you kick us off? What do you got? Cool. I know you told us to have one to two, but I have three. So just, just a heads up. Sorry. I'm coloring outside the line. It's fine. Brevity's rarely our strong suit on these. You're good. All right. Yeah. I think the first thing is a bike, a bike that was released recently. It's the new pivot firebird 29. I think we, I think I'm speaking on behalf of everyone here at Blister that we're really impressed by both the new Switchblade and the new Trail 429. Seems like the stuff that Pivot's been putting out recently is super solid, um, really getting along with the new vertically oriented DW Link uh, setup. It's resulted in a really efficient 
but still not totally harsh suspension platform. And I feel like it would make a lot of sense for that to carry over to their enduro race rig. So yeah, really hoping to get on that bike. Hopefully we can make that work. And I'm guessing we'll be hopefully equally as impressed as we've been with the last couple new vertically oriented DW link pivots we've been on. So fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, ironically, so the day that press release lifted and we posted our first look at that, I was, I was riding the bike park that afternoon and all of a sudden I see this bright orange bike coming down the Crested Butte bike park. I'm like, Oh, that kind of looks like the firebird we talked about today. And it was. And so somehow someone from pivot was in town and testing it. So I got to check it out in person. That was also one of the products I was most excited about just because since I spend most of my time here and especially at the bike park, when I was riding switchblade in the trail 429, I was just like, these are sick. I would really like to try them with more travel too. And that seems like that's what the firebird is. So yeah, hopefully we get to test it out. Yep. We're kind of lining one of those up. Does seem like a cool option. I'd be excited to check that out too. Dylan, if you've got three, why don't we just lightning round these? Keep going. What else do you have? I guess my second one is kind of general, but I do have a specific bike in mind. Again, these are all three bikes too, so they're pretty generic and not very interesting, but I'm still going to say them. Second is I just want to get on a mullet bike. And I know I could like somehow piece together a mullet bike if I wanted to, but there are people getting paid far more than I get paid and spending a lot more time looking at bike geometry and configuring mixed wheel sizes on bikes to have engineered bikes that already do that. So I just want to get on a, a mullet bike. If I'm still in the, in the know, it sounds like we have a Bronson new Santa Cruz Bronson coming on uh, soon. And so that is definitely a bike I'm looking forward to getting on. My girlfriend was somehow able to buy probably one of the only new Juliana Rubions in probably the state of Colorado. And she's been really liking that bike. And I'm super jealous that she somehow got on a mullet bike before I did. And she's been biking for like a season and a half. So yeah, uh, the, the Santa Cruz Bronson was my first trail bike that I ever bought. And I feel like it's been a staple in Santa Cruz's lineup for at least since the Bronson has been around. And so I'd be really interested to see the evolution of the Bronson as it exists today and get on a mullet bike. Right on. What's number three? Number three is again, sort of a generic thing. Also going with like the trends of the bike industry these days is I haven't ridden a high pivot bike yet. And you've, David, you've had really interesting things to say about the dreadnought. Yeah. And yeah, on paper makes a lot of sense just looking at the suspension and, you know, seeing what it does. Pretty cool stuff. The new GT force carbon looks pretty cool too. The price points they've been able to put on that bike as well for a new carbon bike. So yeah, want to get on a high pivot bike and see what the hype's all about. Yeah, it's been interesting. I've been riding both that Dreadnought and the Track Session a fair bit. And uh, they're sort of different implementations of the concept. We've talked about this a bit already, but the Dreadnought is sort of a higher pivot than the Session is, right? It's a fully rearward axle path through all of the travel, whereas the 
sessions kind of a bit more rearward than a quote unquote conventional bike, but the axle path does come back forwards by about halfway through the travel on that. And the rearward axle path definitely has some real benefits when it comes to just smashing through rough stuff, sort of straight lining and going real fast. And, but sort of has also some kind of weirdnesses that it starts to introduce when it comes to pumping and popping off of things and how the geometry changes when you're really loading the suspension up in a corner and all of a sudden the rear end gets way longer than it was before. And the, uh, session feels like kind of a really interesting way of balancing all of those things where you get some but not all of the benefits that you see on the dreadnought but also way fewer of the downsides and kind of a interesting middle ground on that front and the that gt force that dylan just mentioned along with the cannondale jackal which is sort of pretty similar bike to the force in a bunch of ways um is similar in that regard to the session so yeah, very curious to give those a go and sort of see how it all stacks up and how they compare. So how about you, Luke? What's on your list? Um, I didn't have anything super particular. Um, one is just like an experiment. I, I'm seriously debating getting a RockShox Zeb and putting it on my meta and seeing if it feels dumb or I'm guessing it won't. Um, just because I like the Zeb so much on the brief time I spent on the, the Trek Slash. But... Aside from that, my uh, my roommate has a specialized status and we're about the same size. So I think I'm going to steal that for a couple runs um, and just see how that feels because that bike's pretty wild. One, like specialized in the US, like doesn't really acknowledge it exists, which is a little strange. It's like the Rosignol Black Ops of ski or of bikes. But two, like wildly short chain stays, very slack pretty long reach and a mullet and he he managed to find a frame um has a coil shock on it um just bought a lyric for it so yeah that's been his park bike and curious to see how it compares to like like the canfield lithium we have right now a similar travel class short rear end also a coil shock very different suspension though I also used to own a specialized Enduro 27.5, the previous generation, and also just compared to my meta, curious to see what that thing actually feels like um, because they've been so weirdly secretive about the fact that they're making it. Um, So yeah, I'll probably report back, maybe do a flash review once I spend some time on it. Yeah, as far as most elusive bike products in the world go, I feel like the status has to be number one. I'm pretty sure that the only way to get a status is like buying it from Poland and Bitcoin or something. <laughs> well, he, so they got, they somehow found this guy, I think he's in like Delaware or something who has an in at specialized in some way. Like they don't even have, they don't have statuses. It's a shop. They don't have them in their shop, but they somehow have a way to order them on demand, which like, sounds like there's like a a black market for bike parks or something which wouldn't be that out of the question given the current state of the industry but yeah yeah it's some some guy on the east coast has he's got he's got the plug for status frames interesting it does look like a really cool bike and as we've covered here specialized marketing of it has been unconventional to say the least but uh yeah neat option be curious to hear what you think about it luke once you get a little bit of time on it 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious too. And yeah, it's, it's, it's especially funny given how when they release a stump jumper or one of their new e-bikes, they have like a, what I assume is a video that costs tens of thousands of dollars to make and they're promoting it everywhere. And then they also make a bike that they never just never talk about. (laughs) This is just a big marketing experiment from specialized that we're all just the subjects of to see if they can truly justify spending, like you said, tens of thousands of dollars on, you know, media and, and videos and whatnot. Maybe they're just figuring out that if it's super elusive, like the hype comes without needing to make it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although right now every bike in the world is elusive. <laughs> you At least you, you know about them. You just can't get your hands on them unless you're Dylan's girlfriend, apparently. Yeah. I don't know how she did it. Probably, <laughs> probably something to do with cryptocurrency in some European country, but yeah, gotta be. Yeah. If, unless you're trying to buy a used bike for like 10% off the retail price, Mm-hmm. then you could i think you get a bike pretty easy right now yeah i think actually <laughs> there were like looking at pink bike there were plenty of statuses that were what definitely more expensive than what they should be yeah could be a good business just having the in with the statuses and just flipping them there you go man so many good ideas that we can't release into the world in this podcast sorry everybody you're never going to hear this one just <laughs> Yeah, this one's just going to have tons of bleeps in it. (laughs) We're not swearing. We're just coming up with fantastic ideas. This is going to be Taylor's hardest editing project ever. (laughs) Sorry, Taylor. (laughs) Well, for my part, a couple things I have on my list here. Uh, First one is actually right behind me. Luke and Dylan sort of half see it. That's a Nikolai G1. So it's the their kind of more updated version of the geometron with a ton of adjustable geometry and ability to run all three modern combinations of wheel size full 27.5 full 29 or a mullet can you do a reverse mullet you probably could if you wanted to it's um i haven't uh run the numbers on what that would take but yeah let's say probably if you got i guess you just want to run a really long fork to kind of balance that out but you could you could probably figure something out so have that almost built up but waiting on the last couple of parts and uh, excited to check that out waiting to and going to do a bunch of experimenting with wheel size and messing around with that and seeing how that all adds up. So that'll be cool. Another one that I'm excited, another product that I'm excited about, since actually not a bike for, for one, is the upcoming semi-released but not actually super available yet Olin's RXF 38. I reviewed the RXF 36 earlier this year and was super impressed with its performance, but basically just want a bigger, stiffer version of it. And on paper, the RXF 38 seems like it should be that. It's essentially the same damper and spring as the RXF 36 Air, which I was a huge fan of. And so if it is, in fact, literally just an RXF 36, but stiffer, I'm going to be pretty psyched about it. And then the last thing I want to shout out real quick is the We Are One Arrival. It's I've been very impressed with several of their wheel sets now, and it looks like just very interesting geometry and really well thought out layout for a fairly aggressive kind of blurring the lines between a long travel trail slash enduro sort of bike. And they're doing some neat stuff. It's a bike that's all produced in Kamloops, BC, and uses materials that are all sourced within 500 miles of their factory, apart from the titanium hardware for all the pivots and such, which is a 
pretty impressive and unique thing. And like we talked about in our first look of it actually comes in at a shockingly competitive price given all that. It's very expensive, but they're also only offering it with super high-end builds. And when you compare kind of apples to apples in terms of build spec, it is a pretty good value actually. And so it's an interesting thing and uh, looks very cool. It's also just a particularly good looking bike aesthetically and uh, seems real sweet and hoping to get one of those soon and check that out too. Yeah, I think from like a whole story perspective, that's probably one of the most interesting products that's come out in for me in the past several months, especially from a manufacturing perspective. So yeah, if you, if you get to test one, I'm very curious what it actually rides like. Cause like we talked about, like we, we tested a bunch of recent bikes from pivot and we've tested a bunch of recent bikes from a lot of brands and you can kind of pick up on certain things that they're doing across their line. But like, we are ones never made a bike before. So I'm like, I have no idea what that'll ride like, but curious to find out. <laughs> yep. Same kind of in uncharted territory, but very curious to find out more about it. Well, I think that's been a pretty good roundup of all the stuff that we've been liking and are excited to get on soon. So thanks for the conversation guys. And we'll talk to you again soon. I'm sure. Say ya. Cool. Take care. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas, and if you are enjoying these conversations, then we would really appreciate it if you would take 30 seconds to leave us a five-star rating or review in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Dylan and Luke for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again soon. Bye, everybody.